Shalom, y'all. This is Meir Simcha. We're glad so many people are enjoying these conversations with two Christians and a Jew. If you enjoy 2C1J, please subscribe to the podcast, spread the news about us to your family, friends, and community, and consider becoming a patron of the podcast at patreon.com backslash 2C1J. Supporting the podcast will help us produce new episodes on a regular schedule. Also, I'd love to hear from you. The best ways to get in touch are Twitter and Facebook. Links are in the podcast description below. Thank you for your support. Most of all, thank you for enjoying these explorations with us. Be well and be blessed. Welcome to Two Christians and a Jew, where two Christians and a Jew dig into the Hebrew scriptures and look at the way we read them differently and consider how it matters for our lives. I'm Jennifer Jones. I'm Frank Tim. Did you want to say something about what we're going to do, Frank? Oh, well, um, Jen made me pinky promise that I couldn't say anything, and I got super confused about <laughs> pinky promises versus like regular promises, because like I crossed my fingers and said, I'm gonna... But then, I said you had to pinky promise about one particular question. Oh, I think we were going to be talking about promises or pinky swears or something. Oh, wow. You are clever, man. Wow. Whew. Okay. <laughs> and I am Mayor Simcha Panzer, your resident Jew. You're two Christians and a Jew. And it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce the great Dottie Rogers. Dottie Rogers is... A sweet and loving person who I met on Twitter, and she asks outstanding questions about the Hebrew scriptures, and we are extremely excited to have her here with us today. Thank you. Thank Dottie. you. I am really excited to be here. I'm honored to be among such scholars as yourselves, so I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Yes, and I understand that you're speaking specifically to Jen and Mare. Fantastic. Well, to all of you, to all of you, you keep us real, Frank. <laughs> Getting too caught up in the heady stuff. You have the best questions. So you and Dottie should have a great time today. I love the questions that both of you are always asking. And I know that Dottie had, when we started talking about doing this episode, Dottie, you said covenant. And I'm like, covenant, great. And then I started thinking, okay, where do we start? Do we start and yeah. we start talking about so many questions around the concept of covenant and then digging into different texts. And so we kind of settled with okay, maybe let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant or what Christians at least would call the Abrahamic covenant. So we narrowed it down to Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And then we started looking and again, too much. So we've kind of narrowed. And I think today we wanted to try and focus a bit on Genesis 12. Does that work for you, Mayor? I'm still getting used to these chapter numbers and referring to things by chapter numbers. It's very foreign to me. But Lech Lecha, thank you very much. Yes, now you're talking my language. All right, yeah. Let's let's dive into Lech Lecha because Lech Lecha is really the beginning for us. If I could give a few words of introduction about the idea of covenant, I think that'd serve us well. So, yes, please do. Cool. Okay, so when we're talking about a covenant, uh, our word for it is Brit, and I'm probably going to just use the word Brit. Uh, plural is Britot. If I say that, you know, I mean Brits or covenants. Uh, okay, so in English, the word covenant is a little dusty. What exactly does that mean? 
So basically, we're talking about a contract. We're talking about an agreement. So there are going to be parties. There are going to be conditions to fulfill. There are going to be uh, rewards, punishments, the same way that you'd have payment or penalties in any kind of any kind of contract potentially. Now, when we use the word breed in the language of the Torah, we aren't necessarily referring to a covenant between God and humankind. We could be referring to any kind of or many kinds of agreements between people. So it could be sacred, it could be secular. So for example, in the secular realm, we have Yitzchak, Isaac, making a breed with the uh, Philistine king Abimelech. Right? So that's, that agreement there is described as a Brit. Uh, and there are many other uh, Britot among people who are, uh, which are described in, in the, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. And then there are also lots of Britot between God and Yisrael. Now, that might come as a little bit of a surprise because I think that I think this is a little bit obscured by the terminology New Covenant, which is as if there's only one new covenant and as if there's only one old covenant. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but I, I feel like somehow it implies that in the same way that we have like one New Testament and one Old Testament. Okay, New Covenant, New Testament, so must be Old Testament, Old Covenant. So one of each, right? But no, it's not actually that way. In fact, there are many, many different pretot. And Dadi, when you initially brought this idea out, a couple months ago when we started to talk about this, that was exactly what you pointed to. You're like, wait, hold on. I see that they're retote going along through the generations. I thought that was that was amazing to, to note that development. Yeah, Jen. So I have two questions. First, you you focused on covenant as being like a contract. And I think I think in today's context, that's very helpful. Within the ancient context, we often look at the similarities between breach or, or covenant and the ancient Near Eastern treaties. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a distinction or value in focusing on contract as opposed to treaty? I mean, a treaty is a kind of covenant, or I mean, a, a kind yeah. of contract. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, in, I, in is, yeah. Do and, you see? Yeah. Do you see yeah, and, value in looking at that? Because especially when you start talking about between people or between nations or people and nations and kings. Mm-hmm. So is is that a difference worth teasing out or not? I would actually prefer to emphasize how they're similar, because okay. when we're forbidden from making treaties with the Canaanite nations, the language that we use for describing how that's forbidden is breed, is the same word. So we're talking about the same sort of thing, same category of things. So yeah, that's great. It's an agreement between parties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Don't you think it's it's a really cool thing, though, that because those covenants existed in that world at that time, that God uses something familiar to the Israelite people in order to make his relationship. Because if they were already familiar with, for instance, parity covenants between equal parties or the suzerain vassal covenants between a stronger king and the weaker communities, then they already knew what that was like and what that was about. They knew the structure, they knew the consequences and all of that. Yes, absolutely. It's such a deep point. We actually have a a saying in the rabbinic literature uh, that the Torah speaks in the language of human. 
Oh, I love that. In the language of human language of humankind. This is no, there's no other way to communicate with us. The only way to communicate with us is going to be through the things that are tangible for us on whatever level we're holding. And when the Torah comes into the world, when the Torah is given over to us, it's in that period where those are precisely the tools that are available. And the truth is, by putting that into the Torah, that winds up projecting forward into all of civilization that winds up getting the Torah in whatever translation or form, it winds up projecting that idea forward. It'd be interesting to see how covenants or property law or agreements or treatises, how these work in cultures that that didn't get uh, the Torah early on. I don't know enough about like Chinese culture, or Indian culture to, to make the comparison, but it'd be fascinating to look at it. Well, that, that may point to someone we need to look for for a... Um... I guess in a future episode. So I have a question also because you and Dottie were talking about the continuity between covenants. You were talking about the different covenants, old covenant, new covenant. Um, I believe the first references we get to covenant are actually back related to Noah after the flood. But within scholarship, there are questions about whether or not there was a covenant with Adam. Hmm. So what do you and, think? You know, I honestly, part of the reason I'm asking is because I haven't come to a conclusion on it. I haven't spent enough time. The word is not used. Um, part of the argument, I believe, is often that some of the features that we see in instruction, the idea of a land grant with mm. Eden being the land, that these are, we see elements that we tie and associate with covenant being present in Genesis one. Mm-hmm. I wanted your take on that. That's why I was asking. I'm Hold trying on. I, I, want, I want to hear what you all have to say first. Dottie, what do you say? Well, I could see it either way. Mm-hmm. And especially because if you look at everything up through uh, Genesis 11, um, if, it, if it was all based on covenant, we didn't do so well with that. <laughs> and so Genesis 12 with Abraham starts with, let's just wipe out all the rest of it and start fresh. So mm. I could see it that way. But but if I could um, add something right here, when we were talking mm. about the other covenants that followed the Abrahamic covenant, one of the things is even to get to the new covenant, none of the latter covenants negated the former covenants mm-hmm. they were in addition to is that right you know it, that's it, very very important for understanding the development of covenant it's yeah. not yeah there, it's always like an expansion of the the previous covenant yeah exactly. it doesn't nullify it yeah exactly well, which which has implications for us as we think about new covenant exactly. and and the relevance of what we read in the old testament for christians and i think that's what a lot of christians miss and it's so important. You look like you want to say something, Frank. Yeah, I have a few different questions. So there's a, kind of a reason that I made my little crack about pinky swears and promises and <laughs> that earlier, because you know, that's something that happens a lot when we're kids with how do you affirm that your word is true as true as true? And it starts with the you promise. Well, do you really promise? Okay, pinky swear, cross your heart and hope to die. Like the levels of how serious is your commitment to this thing? Blood um, brothers. They, right. You know, they, they keep going up. 
And what I'm wondering about this word britot um, and brit is, do you have to say the word for it to be one? Do we have to see the, do we have to see, you know, God or you know, someone else saying this is a brit in order for it to be one? Or can they just use all the words that make it one and that makes it one? What makes it official? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there? Yeah. It's good. Great, great question. Yeah, great question. And that gets exactly at this issue around Genesis one and two. Yeah, yeah. you're right. You're so right. should I chime in here? Yes. The element of the Adam and Chava story that to me says that there is an implicit breed, an implicit covenant is that there are mitzvot, there are commandments. And the moment you give over a mitzvah, it seems that there's there's a context implied by that. And that in general, the context for the mitzvot, the context for the laws is our covenant. And so if I see a mitzvot, it's really hard for me to not imagine a covenantal relationship around that. And if we were to go into somewhat more esoteric literature, we would see people looking at the two first words of the Torah, bereshit bara, as echoing the word berit. Bereshit, you rearrange the letters and you have brit esh, a covenant of fire. Wow, wow. Which gets into Genesis 15. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yes. Well, you've given me more food for thought as I'm processing that. I love yeah. that. Thank you. But the beyond word games, because you know, that's to answer Frank's question over there. But to beyond the simple wordplay, I think there's a very deep point, which is that the act of creation itself implies a level of relationship with that creation. There's an implicit agreement, an implicit trust. And very often when we talk about the characteristics or the modes of of action, the manner of action of God, we talk about his faithfulness. It's very nice to talk about whether or not people have faith, but it's, it's an amazing thing to think about the level of trust that God invests in us. <laughs> Here's my world. Please don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> and what do we do? We and what turn do we do? around right. almost immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a there's a beautiful midrash that talks about God giving the tour to Adam and Eve. I've created you. Let me show you this beautiful garden. You know, these trees are like this. These plants are like this. This over here maybe needs this much water. It's like, you know... Right. It's very beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see potential for how you could develop it? Oh, yeah, tremendous potential. Okay. Now, I'm giving it over into your hands. Please take good care of it. We have something very similar with the Torah itself. The Torah is described as God's daughter, given over to Yisrael in marriage. Please take good care of my daughter. I'm going to miss her. Okay, so build me a build me a nice guest room by you. Okay, that's the tabernacle, the tent. Mishkan. 
Yeah, the Mishkan. You know, that's a beautiful parallel to how Christians view the church, because the church is the bride of Jesus. It's Jesus's bride kind of given to us. And so that that's, that is a, a kind of uh, parallel, something being handed us to care for and to participate. In. Well, and, thought of that. and we're using familial language to describe aspects of relationship. And one of the things that you got at, Mayor, is that idea of relationship. And you've, you've picked, you know, you've tapped into that, Frank, this idea of relationship. And within scholarship, a lot of times we'll say, well, why covenant? What's going on here? And there tend to be two answers. One is this piece that you've gotten at, relationship. The other one tends to focus on redemption and a process of, I think, you know, bringing that relationship, helping bring it back to what it should, should have been ideally, which then of course you get into issues of the fall and whether redemption would work in that without that understanding. A third one that I was reading about talks about it as a mode of revelation and how God reveals himself as part of relationship. What do you think about that? I'm not quite sure what the question is. Do you think that revelation could be part of it? That part of what happens in covenant and this idea that I'm giving you my Torah and take care of it. This is revealing something about who God is in the context of relationship. He is revealing who he is. I'm not sure exactly what to do with the idea of revelation. Okay. Because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot attached to that term in English. And I, I guess I'd want to deconstruct a lot of that before saying what it is, but to, interrupt, to go, yeah. Could Please. we call it self-disclosure? That, you know, you see this through these chapters that we were looking at in Genesis that he reveals himself to Abram and Abraham. And there's a growing understanding that you can see that builds that trust in that relationship. I mean, how can you have a relationship with anyone that, or anything that you don't know anything about? And that growing understanding on Abram's part was because God said this to him and said this to him and said this and revealed his faithfulness. So on the one hand, what I think you're saying is exactly right, that there's this process of developing relationship and deepening relationship as there's this increasing knowledge of each other, increasing self-disclosure. Yeah, that I hear. But uh, when we do jump into Genesis 12, the very shocking thing is going to be why on earth is God talking to this guy, Avram? Mm -hmm. Like, where did this come from? And why is he making promises to him? Who, like, whoa, whoa, does Avram know God? Does God know Avram? Like, where did this come from? And and there is a kind of sense of jumping into something that you don't know about. And when we are talking about the Torah and receiving the Torah, um, Yisrael says, we will do and we will understand. We will do it first. And then as we go, we'll figure it out, right? 
And one of the, uh, in the Talmud, there's a story brought that uh, a Tzaduki, um, a Sadducee, uh, criticizes uh, the mainstream of Yisrael, saying, you people are such, uh, you get so excited and infatuated, we're just jumping into some relationship without understanding any of the details. Mm. Like, mm. okay, but if we <laughs> ask to know all the details in advance, okay, let me just take this to my lawyers so we can look at the fine print. Like, I mean, is that is that the relationship that we want with God? Yeah. Right? So, but to, to go back to, to, to Jen's original question, I think the Torah itself is called Sefer Habrit. It's called the Book of Covenant. This is the, the Torah is the object of the covenant. The, the I don't know how to say it, the the terms, sort of the honest, yeah, on on one level, but it's more than that. It it embodies the covenant in a sense. Well, and I think Dottie gets it. What I was at what I was reading about this idea of it as revelation, and part of it was talking about people had come to misunderstand who God was and what what God would look like. And so that this was to correct that interpretation. This mm. is coming out of what happens at Babel in chapter 11. Mm, and a mistaken mm. understanding of what it looks like to relate to the deity. Yeah. And yeah, because yeah. they misunderstand that they need a revelation of who God is and what he is like. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that understanding to, to have a growing and, to have a relationship or at least a healthy relationship. So that's kind of, I, I think that all these pieces kind of fit together in many ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we understand the, the story of Migdal Bavel, the tower of Babel Mm -hmm. as they're building either a a stairway to heaven or a a rocket ship actually is one way it's described actually (laughs) fascinatingly to go there in order to make war against God. Mm. And that is something that I don't know about you, Dottie and Frank, but that's what I heard growing up in church. But that's, that's, I think this is a good text to tackle for another day. And there's a whole different take within scholarship now, but we can put a pin in that. Okay. I mean, I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan, but I really don't want to start (laughs) diving into the solos right now. So, (laughs) Um, It's overplayed. I think it's an interesting point though, about, the flow from the the Tower of Babel into this that um, all of a sudden, I mean, now it kind of makes sense. A lot of people did something wrong and God wants to restore a relationship with someone. So he's picked a dude whose name would go perfect uh, with an extra H kind of inserted in the middle. (laughs) And like, I mean, I, I don't understand why Abram other than, just because, and I'd like to imagine he thought, well, my, my H would go better, like right there. These other guys like lot, it just becomes loth and it's going to be hard to pronounce, but Abram. <laughs> yeah. Now this guy I can work with. Like, I, I wish I, I really do wish I understood why he picked Abram, but regardless, he's revealing as a result of whatever happened, he's going to reveal himself in some way. And he's going to start making some promises to, to Abram. Right. And and look at the two things that follow or the one thing that follows from the Tower of Babel. And they're saying we're going to make a name for ourselves. That's a very humanistic kind of 
approach mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Forget about God. It's all about us. Mm-hmm. And then what does God say to Abram? I'll make your name great. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I think that's a great jumping off point. Why don't we dig into the text since that's where you're, you're getting Dottie. Why don't we start back in what we Christians would call Genesis eleven twenty seven? 27. Uh, this is the account of Tara's family line, because that kind of opens up a little bit of the discussion, I think. You want me to read it? Yeah, please. This is the sure. account of Tara's family line. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. Tara became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcha. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcha and Iska. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram. Which is a crazy thing to say, by the way. Like, that she- tell me she's childless, or tell me that she couldn't conceive or actually it says give birth or that she had no birth Mm -hmm. like what are you telling me both for yeah so the there there are explanations for that okay well we'll have to get into that uh tara took his son abram his grandson lot son of haran and his daughter-in-law sarai the wife of his son abram and together they set out from ur of the chaldeans to go to canaan but when they came to haran they settled there Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, go from, and this is chapter 12, where we usually start reading, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Which I again, will... I'm sorry, just to point it out, this is also a crazy thing to say because it seems to be totally backwards, mm-hmm. right? So leave your country. Okay, I left my country. Leave your the area where you grew up. Wait, I just left my whole country. Of course I left that part, right? Okay, I'll also leave your father's house. Well, obviously I left my father's house. <laughs> the point you, seems you, to- it's, I, love, I love reading this with you, Mare, because the <laughs> things that you pick up are very different than the things that I come to the text and see, because I actually see some intensification of what of the sacrifice being asked. Obviously, you're doing some of it, but this is something we should definitely get into. Right. Well, I that's I think is very much the point. It's easier to leave your country than it is to leave your birthplace. You le- okay? I left my geographical location. Ah, now I have to basically unlearn my cultural conditioning. Mm, much more difficult. Oh, now I have to unlearn the psychological stuff that I got from the time of my birth in my father's home. Ooh, that's much deeper. So the level work required to leave each of these is is much more. So what you're saying is here, you're not just seeing a physical leaving, which I happen to agree with you, but there's that there's much more going on here than just a physical departure from a place. And we should probably note here that they're probably not talking about Ur because the family is now settled in Haran. In Haran, yeah. Right, so. which is another way of reading this. If we we could sort of, we could give a geographical interpretation for each of the different things there, because the place where Avraham grew up is different from where his father is living now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, so, and that was but, the question that I had too. If if God told him while he was in Ur to leave your country and leave your father's home, and that mean if that means leave your father behind. 
why did he go with his father to Haran or why did the father go with him to Haran? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the instruction, the instruction comes to Abram, which implies that it's after they're already in Haran. If you look at the, the narrative logic of it, they are already there when he gets the command. So it's not about leaving Ur. But the question is, where did God approach him to begin with and give the command to go and leave because sometime later, like a couple of chapters later, I can't remember if it's 15 or 17. God says, I called you from Ur of the Chaldees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's confusing because it's not necessarily chronological. Yeah, That's also true. However we understand it, it seems to be clear that there's some kind of process going on here. that begins in Ur and continues through Haran and eventually comes to Canaan. The issue of Abraham's father is a very interesting one. I like to read him charitably as already rejecting the society that they're a part of and starting on his way away from that. Let's get out of the main city, the cosmopolitan area of the Sikh culture and go someplace else. That's not the only way to read it. That's how I personally like to read it. But uh, Rashi and Ramban each have different approaches to those. What are those? There are a lot of details, but I, I saw Dottie had cited them. Uh, so I figured I would, I would gesture in that direction. And if anybody is really interested, and they are, you know, too fan, I'm like, I, um, it, it's beyond me to offer adequate praise for either. Um, but both are available in English. Rashi is available in English online on Safaria. Uh, Ramban, there is like a five volume translation into English, which is perfect. It's an amazing translation. Some of it's online. I don't think all of it is. This is my Chumash and it has some commentary at the bottom. There's the Hebrew, and then it's transliterated into English. But at the bottom, you'll find a lot of the sages quoted here, and it'll tell you whether it's Rashi or Rambam or somebody else at the bottom. And it's for the, the Humash is just Art the scroll. Torah, the Haftarah, and the Megillah. So I yep. love it. I love this. Ravanit Dati. <laughs> and I'm going to second that recommendation because I have one as well. And uh, it's fantastic, especially when when you don't know what you don't know. It, it's really helpful in at least helping you scratch the surface. You know, I, I wasn't planning on approaching Art Scroll as a potential advertiser on this podcast, but maybe I should. Oh, you should. Yes. <laughs> Like we should really talk to the art school people. Two accidental shout outs for that amazing book. That- <laughs> there we go. Art school and JPS are getting uh, getting some good publicity here. Yeah. Before we go on, why don't we dig into that first, that 12-1, since you've already started talking about that. What were some of the questions you had here, Dottie? Well, I've already touched on one just in terms of the chronology of it. But there, there's another aspect of it. You know, he's saying, leave your country. And later he says, I will make you a great nation. Mm-hmm. And he says, leave your father's house. And I'm going to make your descendants great. So you're building your own house, you know. And, and from all of these rebellious people that had been previously listed in Genesis through 11, he now picks one man. And that, that is remarkable. And I sort of put that it's chiastic in a, in a way, but not exactly. I think 12.1 has been described in a lot of writing as 
a test of sorts. And I'd be interested, Mayor, is is it interpreted as a test within the Jewish tradition at all? Yeah, great question. So we have a tradition that Avraham had 10 tests. Really? Okay. Yes. Well, and obviously this one, Isaac. Right. So the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is definitely one of them. And this is... There are so many different ideas about what the 10 tests are. Okay. I can't say for sure whether this is on all those lists, but it is definitely on some of the lists. So definitely some Jewish commentators consider this one of his tests. Okay. So, and again, I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One of the big things, and you've kind of started to get at, is this idea of security. Abraham is being asked, and security at multiple levels, security in his ability to provide for his family the resources that they would have had in their home country, but also the idea of the father's household. You know, we think of security, you know, if we've got a problem, we call the cops, but this was not that kind of society. And your father's household, your clan would have been the source of security that you needed if someone fell on hard times. Again, it goes back to the patriarch. And so yeah. this idea of leaving the father's household to us, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, of course I'm going to leave my mm -hmm. father's household. Mm -hmm. I'm an adult. I have my own car. I have my own apartment or house. <laughs> I'm leaving my father's household. That was not the case. They, mm. they probably, you know, would have stayed within, we talk about it within scholarship, at least as the bait of the house of the father. So this was a huge deal. The other thing is the idea, and I'm. this is digging into the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds and the understanding of gods. And so it has also been suggested here that not only is Abram being called to leave these forms of security, but also the security offered by the gods. And you kind of alluded to this a little bit. He's being asked to leave the city god or the national god that would have been associated with his homeland. You also had gods that were associated with clans and then with the ans and then ancestor gods. So there were different kinds of gods in the ancient conception that mm -hmm. dealt with different things. So you had these, these, you know, cosmic gods, and then they you would go down and you'd have gods that would deal with little things. Well, in this period we start seeing more of a discussion in ancient Mesopotamia of the idea of a personal God. And this personal God mm. would be someone who would kind of be the family's divine sponsor that is looking out for a particular family. And we start seeing more discussion about this kind of God in this period. So I'm very much looking at the ancient context is that like today when people say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual? No. Like I, I don't subscribe to any of those religions. I just have my personal thing. No, 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 it's not that at all. It's more a case of, I believe in all of these gods mm -hmm. because the gods explain everything. Mm -hmm. But the God who really cares about my family is this God. And so mm -hmm. I'm paying the most attention to this one. In the ancient world, though, so there's a, an understanding of this idea that the Lord had revealed himself to 
Abram, and he would have been within these categorizations, been seen as one of these personal gods, but he is the only god who then becomes a national god. Normally they stay in these little things, but this is a point where this God not and makes very unique promises that I will make you a great nation. There's just these understandings in the ancient world. And so this is a transition we see about the uniqueness of who God is, because he maybe has revealed himself as this personal God to this family but he reveals the true nature of who he is, that he is this cosmic God. Uh uh We see this. So because we do see later in Genesis, how other members of of Abraham's family acknowledge this God on some level. We don't know exactly how, what that means. We see that Lavan, for example, acknowledges this God, but he also has uh, teraphim. He also has some kind of idolatry that he's looking around. <laughs> There's a lot of idolatry in the ancient Near East. Okay, I hear what you're saying. That's that's interesting. So anyway, those are just some interesting points, but this raises the question then, is Abram a monotheist? Is he someone who believes in only one God or is he better described as a henotheist? Someone who believes that there are other gods out there, but I'm only going to worship this one God. And that goes back to Dottie's question about that story from the Midrash. Yep, which is why I kind of wanted to tie back out. So yeah, yeah. I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And Um, you're good because you picked up on it because I'd kind of gone off. (laughs) No, it's, it's a question of... Is there any reason to believe that this is a, an intentional transition from a whole bunch of gods to one personal god? Is that what we're seeing here? We got any stories? Um, well, and is it a belief in one god or is it a worship of one god? Yeah. I okay. okay. So the the mainline orthodox opinion is going to be to say there it is a belief that there is only one god. If you look outside of the mainstream Orthodox world, you'll hear people saying things like henotheism. I actually think that the difference between those is not as great as people think it is. Okay. But the answer that I have for why that's the case is a little long. You look now, like you have a question, Dottie. Well, I was I was just thinking that the the way Abraham could have come to know this one God is through revelation and that this one God shows that he is both transcendent and imminent. Mm-hmm. But, and but how could that come other than through revelation or self-disclosure, however you want to call it? So, so then you're pointing at Genesis 12, 1, this command, lech lecha, you know, get yourself going as the revelation that alerts Abraham to, you know, whether or not you knew this God before, this is the God who you're going to follow and go do it, man. Is it just in the instruction or is it also in the promise, what we would describe as a promise that follows? You do this and I'm going to do this. Well, actually, so the the promises that follow, this is the, the thing I wanted to address before. You were saying that leaving the father's house is actually a terrible hazard Right. And traveling in the ancient world was also not like hopping on a train or a plane and relocating as it is right. today. 
these were difficult and potentially deadly undertakings. And so the second verse of chapter 12, this Rashi reads as addressing three problems that Avram is about to have if he goes on the road. Rashi says that traveling is the cause of three problems. It breaks up family life, which could be a fertility problem too. Hmm. It reduces one's wealth and lessens one's renown, which is not simply a matter of being a YouTube star. It's an issue of having the right connections in order to you know, make it in human society. And so therefore, Avraham needed these preci- precisely these three blessings, the, a promise of children, a promise of wealth, and a promise of a great name. Rashi's source is actually in the Midrash in Genesis Rabbah. That's interesting. These promises aren't out of the blue. The way that Rashi is reading it is that there's a fundamental thing that needs to be undertaken. There's a halicha, a journey that needs to be undertaken. And these promises are there to facilitate the journey. Mm. But the journey is the main thing. Let me bring you one other thing about the journey itself. The phrase lech lecha is a very curious phrase. It would be enough to say lech, go. But it doesn't say go, it says lech lecha, go to yourself, go for yourself. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go for yourself is how it reads most smoothly. And then Rashi looks at that and he says, what does that mean? That means lech lecha lahanatecha ulatovatecha, go for your benefit and for your good. In other words, if you undertake this journey simply in order to be obedient to the God who commanded it to you, you are not fulfilling the mitzvah. You are not doing the commandment. The only way to actually fulfill this commandment is to do it for yourself. This journey has to be for yourself. It has to be to develop yourself. Don't do this for me. Do this for you which is a fascinating way to begin this relationship. That's a really interesting thing because I've been wondering about Lech Lecha for a while, like why it was, and but it seemed natural to me um, because in Spanish, we have that structure. I can tell someone Eid, which is just go, but Mm -hmm. when I'm especially annoyed with my kids, which is Mm -hmm. often because they're children, I say Bete, which means go yourself. So there's more than one way that I can command someone to do something. And in certain cases, the command that I will issue is not just go and do it. It is go and do it yourself. Is yourself there, is that a direct object or something else? It's a direct object. So here it's Um, not a direct object. Is it a reflexive or a direct object? Well, actually, no, no, no. I I take that back. When I say something like bete, it's not receiving an action in in that case, because you're not the recipient of the going. But it's one of the ways that we issue commands is that I I tack it on at the end there. And so Mm -hmm. it's actually treated more, I guess, it's more of a reflexive. The point is, it's an emphatic. It means something different. If I tell one of my children, like, no preocupese, you know, don't bother yourself. But if I say, no preocupese lo, or if I, if I start making it more reflexive, it's very important to them mm. that they do that. And we also have certain words in Spanish that are, they're not reflexive. They're just weird in how they come back, back on you. Mm. But 
I I don't have another way to describe it because there are very small case of verbs that I think are called psychological effectives or something like that, where you're just interpreting how it affects you personally. So it's a thing that happens in some languages where we have to add that extra you in there so that it drives home the point that this is part of you. I could um, understand that in like redneck Southern English, yeah, and I can say that because I am one. But it it would be like get yourself out of here, or in that's exactly what I was thinking. Out of here, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> get yourself out of here. So oh yeah. I'm, well, so to this point about the reflexive, this language here, lech lecha, go yourself or go to yourself, is actually contrasted hmm. with the same verb. Halicha later in Abraham's life, which is in the reflexive, hitalech hmm. lefanai tamim. Right? Okay. Like go for go yourself before me, and be pure, simple. As or, you were talking about this idea that with lech lecha, it's something that Abram has to do. He has to experience for himself that this is a journey that he must undertake. If I characterize that correctly mayor yeah okay that to me if we go back briefly to that conversation that i was or what i was saying about this idea of a personal god or a family god that actually is very interesting because within that context your belief in this god was something that would have been inherited because it's who your family is this isn't something necessarily about choosing to follow a God. This is just who your family follows. So there's this idea of inheritance. But even within that, if we take that concept, mm. you have just kind of added that aspect of, but you have to experience this for yourself. You may be, I may be potentially your family God, but you must experience this journey with me yourself. This can't be just something that you take on and maybe I'm taking it somewhere I shouldn't, but it just sounds to me like this isn't something that you just take on your worship of me or your, your trust in me because that's who your family is, but it's because of a relationship that you and I are having and you have to take this journey. I, I would push it more radical than you're saying. Okay. You're living in a world, Abraham, where everything is explained by God's. Everything is a God. Everything is done for the gods, around the gods, with the blessing of the gods. There's a libation before every meal. There's a, everything is gods, 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 gods. Yeah. Abraham, I want you to do something which has nothing to do with the gods. This is for you. This is not about doing hmm. something that you think is going to bring some benefit to the gods in order that they bring some benefit back onto you or something like that. This is for the sake of humanity. This is for the sake of Avraham and what can come out of Avraham. Go do this. I read where his response has been described as a radical obedience, a radical commitment. And if if you're, you know, you language people can take that word radical back to root. Yeah. It is it is a root level source level commitment that he's being asked. Is that right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think so. that the, the level of commitment here is, 
is, is massive. Deeper. It's not just orders of magnitude greater than what we usually relate to as commitment. This is a commitment on the existential level, commitment on the level of this is who I am. At the source, the, the root, the source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I can get back to your question before, which we essentially looped back around to, like where did Avraham come from? Who is this guy? What is he doing in knowing this God? I'd like to bring you my best understanding of it, which is in Rambam, because I'm almost always quoting Rambam, uh, because I love Rambam. And this is in the Mishnah Torah, and this is the very beginning of the laws of idolatry, which are not laws for how to do idolatry. They're laws for essentially how to avoid getting involved with a society constructed around idolatry. Here's what Rambam does. I'm just going to do this in English because it's a little bit long. After Avram, this mighty man was weaned from his mother's milk. He began to explore and think. Though he was a child, he began to think incessantly throughout the day and night, wondering, how is it possible for stars and planets to move without having anyone controlling them? Who's causing it to revolve? Surely it does not cause itself to revolve. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. This is an important point because we do have from Noah, Noah had sons, and we have a tradition that there was a tradition that passed through Noah to shame, from shame to his grandson, Aver, And eventually you have Yaakov, Jacob going to study in the the yeshiva, the school of Aver, but Avram was not a part of that. Avram was separate from that tradition. He was completely on his own. So he had no teacher, nor is there anyone to inform him. Rather, he was mired in the culture of the big city where he was growing up or custom among the foolish idolaters. His father, mother, and all the people around him were idol worshipers, and he would worship with them. However, his heart was exploring and gaining understanding. He realized that there was one God who controlled the heavens, that he created everything, and that there is no other God among all the other entities. He knew that the entire world was making a mistake. What caused them to err was their service of the stars and images, which made them lose awareness of the truth. Fascinating point. It sounds like he's just repeating himself maybe, but what he's saying is that it was their involvement in this worship that obscured the truth. So he's separating their philosophy from their worship service. So initially, you could start off with the right philosophy and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know there's a supreme God, but, you know, he has all these angels and intermediaries. And since he honors them that they should, you know, have such an exalted place in creation, we should, you know, bow down to them and honor them, too. Wouldn't that be a desirable thing to do? And the answer is no, definitely don't do that, because doing that is going to completely lead you astray. Avram was 40 years old when he became aware of his creator. When he recognized and knew him, he began to formulate replies to the inhabitants of Orkastim and debate with them. He started debating clubs, telling them that they were not following a proper path. He broke their idols. He was a vandal. He was the original iconoclast, right? He's actually an iconoclast. Literally. (laughs) He broke their idols and began to teach the people that it is fitting to serve only the God of the world. To him alone is it fitting to bow down, sacrifice, and offer libations so that the people of future generations would recognize him, which is also a shocking thing to say. Because he's not saying that this service in itself is important. 
there's no sanction for worship. It's just that a family that prays together stays together. There's no commandment at this point to do any kind of worship. He knows that there's this God, and he knows that if people don't get to do something, then the whole movement is going to fall flat on its face because that's the nature of humanity. Eventually, that nature of humanity will be addressed directly by the Torah and will be very specific commandments about how to serve God. But in the meantime, Avram sees it basically as a logistical necessity so that the people of future generations would continue to recognize him. Conversely, Rambam goes on, it is fitting to destroy and break all the images lest all the people err concerning them, like those people who thought that there are no other gods besides these images. When he overcame them through the strength of his arguments, the king desired to kill him. He was saved through a miracle and left for Haran. Now, are you with me still? Can I read you something else? Keep going. So who's that king? We have a tradition that Nimrod, who you read in the genealogy preceding all of this, was a a mighty hunter or something like that, that Nimrod was the one who led the initiative to build the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. And that Nimrod is the king who has taken over that whole region who now wants to kill Avraham. So now here's a Midrash. This is in Bereshit Rabbah. I forget which chapter. Um, And... uh, this is one of these midrashim that we teach our children from a very young age, but we don't necessarily teach them the whole thing as one unit. Um, and the original language is extremely powerful. I, the original language is Aramaic, but the the subtleties of of how it's set up is is really powerful. So so here we go. Rabbi Chia said, Terach, that's Avram's father, had a business making and selling idols. He once went away somewhere and left Avram to mind the shop. A man came in and wished to buy an idol. How old are you? Avram asked the man. Fifty years old, he said. Oi, fifty-year-old man who would worship a day-old object? Avram said. On another occasion, a woman came in with a plate full of flour and asked him to take this and offer it to them. So he took a stick and broke them and put the stick in the hand of the largest idol. When his father returned, he demanded, what have you done to them? I can't hide it from you, Avram said. A woman came with a plate full of fine flour and asked me to offer it to them. This statue yelled, I eat first. Then this one yelled, I eat first. Then the largest got up, took the stick and broke them. (sighs) Why are you mocking me, Avram? Avram? What do they know? Terach said. Your ears should hear what your mouth says said Avram. Terach seized Avram and brought him to Nimrod, the king, which is wild. So Avram's father, according to this Midrash, is bringing him to the king. What is that about? Nimrod reasoned with Avram. I love this because it's it's a pretty sympathetic portrayal of Nimrod. It'd be really easy to paint him as, as just some like maniacal tyrant, yeah. like a kind of Nero kind of figure. That's how I paint my Nimrod. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, but I mean, think about it. It's, it's after the flood and, you know, people are reproducing at an amazing rate and you know what's going to happen. They're going to split off into their family groups and pretty soon one group is going to be at war with another group. And, and this will not do. We can't have that kind of violence. So we have to be unified. 
And in order to be unified, we need we need to, to be on the same page with the same ideas and, and talk about them in the same ways. And if you say the wrong thing, we're going to cancel you. And this is very important. Uh, this is what we need for peace, for our time and for all times. And so we need this beautiful utopia that we're going to build. And that God who did this mobble, who sent this flood, we better go make war against him. So we're going to build this tower. Okay, so this is the Nimrod, who's a great mind, to whom Terach brings his son Avram. So Nimrod says to Avram, let's worship fire, but then let's worship water, which extinguishes fire, said Avram. Okay, let's worship water. Mm, but then let's worship the clouds, which bear the water. Fine, we'll worship the clouds. But then let's worship the wind, which disperses the clouds. Okay, so let's worship the wind. But then let's worship humans who can stand up to the wind. You're playing with words. I worship fire, so I will throw you into the fire. Let your God, whom you worship, come and save you from it. You were asking about Lot. So Lot is the nephew of Avram. And Lot's father is Haran, not Haran. Haran is the place. Haran is the brother. There's right. some kind of pun there. Yeah. Right? Now, Haran, who is he standing ran there. so far away. What's that? He ran so far away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Haran, who is standing there. Why was it? Apparently, when Teras brought Avram to the king, he brought everybody. So Haran was standing there undecided. And he thought to himself, if Avram wins this argument, I'll say I'm on his side. If Nimrod wins this argument, I'll say I'm on his side. When Avram, well, I mean, that might sound like kind of indecisive or cheapo, but I mean, maybe he's just a good empiricist. Like, let me see what comes out of the experiment here. So when Avram descended into the fiery furnace and was saved, Nimrod asked him, who are you with? Oh, I'm with Avram, he answered. So Nimrod's guard seized him and threw him into the fire. His innards were scorched and he died in the presence of his father. It's fascinating that his innards were scorched. Why is it his innards? So there was some level of protection. He said the right thing on the outside. He wasn't altogether whole with it on the inside. So it's his innards that are scorched. Just one of the beautiful literary aspects of the Midrash. Microwave effect. The microwave effect. That's right, yeah. yeah. Early microwave. Yeah. That's my basic understanding of where Avram is coming from. Mm. Wow. Interesting. interesting. I love that. Just get, interesting? Well, we get it none of that. It you by the heartstrings. And... <laughs> no, we get none of that. Well, you get, <laughs> it, it gives the story, but it, I love how it also starts. It's not just a backstory. It's not just answering yeah. questions that you wish the text answered, but it has deep philosophical truths that really point us to even deeper questions yeah and deeper issues yeah well you see you see how human nature is the same no matter what era or generation you're talking about but you also mm. see how you know as much as especially christians feel the drive to um witness for him um or, or we all feel a need to show people who god is but he's responsible for himself to show himself in a lot of ways yeah. through every generation. 
Huh. Yeah, that's completely outside of the way that I think about this stuff. Because the <laughs> idea of witnessing is like not not something that we do. Right, right. It's it's you know, because you call it proselytizing and that's not necessarily what everybody's in the Christian faith's idea is, although some people do have that as a goal. But what but what I'm saying is, you know, we we do represent our God. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and he is responsible to speak for himself too. He doesn't need us to speak for him. He's responsible to speak for himself because he's done it down through the ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it's an amazing chutzpah to, to think, I don't know. How do you translate that into English? It's like a divine nerve it, guts. Yeah. Like what, what, <laughs> what, what the word nerve? I was thinking of, but it worked. It's better. What nerve to think that God needs you to do something. Mm. God is giving you these opportunities. You get to be a part of this amazing process of creation unfolding. Like, oh, God needs you to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, we may, I think sometimes we take that we unintentionally think that, but I don't think any of us would cognitively say, oh, God needs me to do this. But at the same time, I feel like I think he does invite us to participate that we, we do have a responsibility that he calls us to act in certain ways and to represent who he is. Otherwise, why, why would Israel have been called to be a kingdom of priests? Well, there is some role that God is giving calling to that has some, and maybe, maybe I'm overreading the idea of priests, but there's at least, you know, with, within my reading is this, it's a mediatorial role. The priest mediates between God and humanity. There is a role for humankind, but we shouldn't have the chutzpah to think that we're necessary. Or, or Israel's called to, to the nations too. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it doesn't mean that we don't have a call to participate because he has invited us to. The, the place where I meet this kind of mechanical thinking, like God needs us to do this, you know, also in my personal life, I'm not saying that I'm beyond this, is in mechanical observance of the mitzvot. Mm, yeah. Like now I have this obligation to go do this thing. I have to go do this thing. What happens if I don't do this thing? Well, you know, whatever, whatever the consequences are. Yeah. But it's like these keeping the laws while losing the context is a very kind of cold orthopraxy. Like the, the mechanical action is not the important thing for God. You know, these mechanical things for you to do, whether it's shaking a bunch of leaves on Sukkot or it's uh, lighting uh, a Hanukkah on Hanukkah or w- whatever the case is, those are for us. Those are to shape us into people who can be fully human. Well, and I love how you focus on that because sometimes it gets talked about that way in highly liturgical settings where you go in and you have a very formal kind of worship. And some people will say, well, you're just going through the motions. But those acts have deep I'll say symbolic meaning that is tied to them. And so when I choose as a non-Catholic to then attend a Catholic Ash Wednesday service, to me, it's not so familiar to me. And so I can go in and actually, I feel like I appreciate 
the symbol and what it's pointing to, or, and sometimes, you know, the deeper reality of what's going on, I appreciate in a different way. But uh, James K.A. Smith has actually written two books that kind of talk about this very point that you mentioned. One is, I think, I think it's Desiring the Kingdom. And that's more of an academic version. It's a heavy read. But then he's got another one that's a more popular level version called You Are What You Love, I think. Mm. And it's the idea that these practices that we engage in, and he's talking about liturgies, and he calls them liturgies. But what he's getting at is formative practices that shape our loves at the precognitive level. So before you even... Mm are aware of it. It is shaping your affections. And that reminds me very much of uh, Alistair McIntyre with his virtue ethics after, after virtue, right? After virtue. Yeah. Yeah. So it's getting at this idea that these practices that we have, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about, Mayor, these practices shape our loves and they shape our affection for God. And so being becoming cognizant, not just of not letting them become rote, but making sure that the practices that we're engaging in actually are shaping the right kinds of love for mm-hmm. God and yeah. for neighbor. Yeah. I remember, um, I became a Christian at 19 after going through um, a phase in my life where I was somewhere between atheist and, and, and agnostic. And uh, my family um, tradition is very, very nominally Methodist. And Methodist is, it partly gets its name because there are methods to worship. It's very structured. Hmm. And so going to a Methodist church on very rare occasions as a kid I didn't understand why I was standing up now and sitting down now and why we're saying this and why we're doing that. And I was very disenfranchised with the whole thing because I, I just didn't get it. And I remember becoming a Christian, coming home for the first time, probably two or three weeks after I had converted to Christianity. And I was at a Methodist church that did all these motions that I didn't understand, except I cracked open uh, a hymnal for the very first time. And I found out that those hymns were worship songs. (laughs) And no one had ever told me those are worship songs. And my mind was blown. And it, that started to shape, uh, that started to, to, to shape me. It started to shape how I entered into the presence of God with that understanding. And I'm starting to see now with like the backstory of what, you know, this wonderful like prologue to Abram that things were starting to get shaped where he was being formed. And so when we get to the point when it, when it's time for him to get himself, to get his, to get his butt out of where he is and to get himself somewhere that he's been shaped and that he's going to do these things. Well, you're just going to go and do it and do it, do, and then ask questions. And so now it's his spiritual, I'm starting to see like, there's a whole lot of spiritual formation in what's happened here in two verses. I never realized that. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah, the fact that this is phrased as a journey is a, yeah. an amazing first 
formative stage. And, you know, there's also, it's like he had done all he could do in that setting. He mm. could not change that culture. Yeah. Mm. And he had to get out of there to form a new family, a new nation that would be steeped in the knowledge of the one true God. Mm. And that has departed from all these other gods. Right. Right. Yeah. I want to get back to the idea of these promises. Yeah. Because that's something that runs through the chapters that we, in our offline conversation, looked at with Dottie. It's kind of the, I don't know, driving force of Avram's life. Is that a fair thing to say? I'm not. I think it's great. And it's also going to be the language that Christians will be familiar with from Paul who focuses on the promises to Abram as actually coming before the rest of Torah. Although he's, he's calling it namas or law. So I probably shouldn't say Torah. And Mir, I appreciate what you said about that so much because my impression reading through those promises is why didn't Abraham think what's in this for me? Because this is all to the future generations. You know, I'm going to be doing this and setting it up, but what do I get out of it? Oh, I, I see it as is very good for for Avram. Yeah, you like okay, too. I have to I have to leave this sick society, but I got to get out of the sick society. I can't continue to live here. God's promising me children, which I haven't had so far, so that's pretty good. And He's promising me wealth. Sounds good, and He's going to make my name great. And sounds good to me too. Like you know, there's there's a lot that Avram stands to gain from this. No. I, I see most of it being fulfilled later, posterity that comes in the future. Yeah, I mean, he did become a rich man. You know, Well, you've got this idea, it, I will make you a great nation. So yeah, that's future, but, and I will bless you. It's I will bless you singular. So what's the idea? What's the idea of blessing and this idea that it's well-being, it's provision, peace. So there, there is very much something that, you, you know, you could kind of guess and say, well, if I don't do this, he's not going to bless me and I'm going to have a mess on my hands. <laughs> so I think he does in some sense have some, I will make your name great. Uh, part of that, you know, could be fame, but also known of being known for being someone of superb character uh, reputation. So I think that there are some senses in which it's future. It's very much also mm -hmm. in the present. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. One of the understandings yeah. of that is that Avram becomes the model for what it is to be a, a good person. Mm. Everybody understands you need to be a person who cares about justice. That's something we'll see later with Avram. You need to be a person who seeks wisdom who is willing to be courageous and, you know, follow the call of adventure or, you know, run out into the adventure. Noah is the one who walks with God. Avram's the one who walks before God. Go out there, figure things out. And yeah, I'll, I'll watch you. If I like it, I'll tell you it's good. Right. So he, he becomes this tremendous model for bravery, for creativity, for spirituality. And that's certainly not limited to, to Jews seeing him as a model. That that's part of his name and his name changed, that he becomes an Av 
the simple meaning of Ava is father on a more general level. We see this in many places in, in the Torah. Av means uh, like paradigm or model. So he becomes a model. He becomes a paradigm for, for what it is to be a great person. Not the only paradigm, maybe. but Well, I love how you're picking up on that idea because there are some within Christianity who would say all of, and I have to say to some extent, I, I agree, all of the patriarchs, all of the humans in scripture, you know, Hebrew Bible or New Testament, they're flawed. And so we have to be careful about setting them up as models to follow, although we can learn something from them that ultimately that this text is revealing to something to us about who God is. Um, so I love hearing, but having being exposed to both sides, because I think in these, we see something about who God is and what he promises. But I appreciate that perspective because I was wondering, and I'd wanted to ask you, how do you read this if all peoples on earth will be blessed through you? I had wanted to, because we often use that or understand that as pointing to Jesus. That's interesting. I mean, very plainly, Christianity has been a tremendous blessing to the nations which have absorbed it. I mean, maybe that's not like, well, it's the idea I mean, that, that, that Jesus, that's a pretty simple opinion. I've, well, I'm trying it, to, yeah, it's pointing to Jesus as Messiah specifically through the line of Abraham, through the line of Ab because of Abraham, ultimately, genealogy. Yeah, ultimately, Jesus would be the seed. So this is within the Paul. Well, obviously, I'm not going to go there. But. Oh, I know you're not going to go there. I know you're not going to go there. Yeah. But that was part of why I wanted to see how you mm -hmm. read yeah. this. Yeah, because yeah. of the Christian understanding that, well, of course, this is about Jesus. To hear how you're talking about this, I find that fascinating. It sounds, it, it, on one level, it sounds crazy to me to say it's about Jesus. Like, where's, I didn't see his name in the, the verse anywhere here. But, um, but on a very simple level, and Rambam actually writes this himself. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, you can be as critical as you want of the the particulars of the faith of uh, the Muslims and the Christians, but it's very clear that what they've done for the world has been a tremendous benefit to, to humanity. Well, that ultimately goes back to Abraham, though. But, yeah. but look at the contribution that Jews have made to the world yeah. in terms of literature. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'd love to talk about that stuff. I mean, you don't get the yada yada <laughs> Jewish history. Right contribution. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Blessings to the world, yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We're going to let you take credit for all of it, Mayor. <laughs> well, I wanted to go back to this idea of promises because I started off talking about Breed mm -hmm. because of all of our offline conversation. And I wanted to highlight how the word Breed is not here. Yeah. That we have these promises here, and there are several layers of promises that occur through Abraham's life before we get the language of breed, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's in Genesis 15, right? Yeah, towards the end of the chapter, yeah, 15, yeah. I think 18. Yeah, and the breed there, in fact, the, the promises in general can seem very repetitious. There are subtle differences, and it'd be great to dig into that at some point, the exactly what's changing from one to the next, what's expanding, how, how, uh, how is this growing here? But the, I wanted to point to the word breed in particular, 
because the word itself is a tremendous chiddush. It's a tremendous uh, development in the in the process. I think the first connection to make to breed to that word, which we've talked about as covenant, is that Avram is given brit milah. He's given the mitzvah of brit milah. He's given the commandment to circumcise. Circumcise is such a, it's a Latinate word, right? Like, what, what is that? Brit milah is the word in the Torah for circumcise. It's brit and then milah. So it's the covenant of milah. Okay, so you can ask, what is milah? The literal meaning of milah is word. The word W O R D. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling a little bit with how to say this. The 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 word milah has two obvious meanings. One is, for lack of something better to say, circumcise or circumcision, and then the the other meaning of milah is word. It's a word that means word. Yeah, there are two words that mean word. There's milah and there's davar. Right? You've probably heard davar before. Yeah. Um, but milah also means that. So the word in Hebrew, modern Hebrew for a dictionary is a uh, milon. I don't like the words that you're saying. They confuse me. I'm sorry. No, it's like, this is, no, I mean, this is pretty heavy um, for circumcision to mean, you know, brit milah, like that's a. Oh yeah. I mean. That's a big deal. That's a, yeah. And I don't know what to make of that yet. Um, okay. I'm just <laughs> making that comment that. For it, for for it, for the, for what circumcision is, for that mm-hmm. to be the words to use to describe it, that really changes how I'm I should view circumcision. Like circumcision, all of a sudden seems like the worst possible way to describe what that is. Oh yeah, it's like it's awful language. Like it just feels like <laughs> this sort of like Latin phrase here, but like. Brit milah. I don't know. For, for me, the the feeling yeah. of the words is totally different. Just a bit. It's just a bit, yeah. I'm so, saying that as a woman. Yeah. So, brit milah, uh, as we read right there when, when Abraham gets the mitzvah, is on the eighth day that, uh, that a boy's alive. So the eighth day, in, if we were to look back at the beginning of creation, the eighth day is the next step after the paradigmatic days of creation. So it's like, okay, God did the first seven days. Now it's yours. Take it forward. Mm-hmm. So that's very much what, that's the connection between Brit Mila and the creative process, right? Brit Mila is done with the organ of procreation the eighth day connects it to the process of proceeding with creation. Is this the creativity of humanity? This connects us going back further to Adam as the consciousness of the world. So the consciousness of the world in Genesis chapter two, Adam is presented as a solution to a water problem. Well, we have these plants, they aren't quite growing because there's no Adam to work the ground. What are you going to do? So Adam is created. And now what? Now there's going to be rain? Yeah, because now there's somebody to recognize the need for rain and to pray for it. 
and to pray, okay, over here we need this much rain, over here we need this much rain, to, to deal with those kinds of things. That's the consciousness of man, how man is now going to be able to shape creation and, and allow the world to come alive and thrive. So that rain is very much connected to the fertility of the land, the way that the land is going to flourish. And then that consciousness is also connected back to the fertility of humanity through the, again, organ of procreation. Right, talking only about the, the masculine half right now. We should, we should talk about women another time. Another really fascinating aspect of Breed Mila is that it's all about aesthetics. It's all about beauty. That goes back to how is man going to shape the world? Adam and Chava have a mitzvah, to work it, develop it, and to maintain it, to keep it. So that involves human choice. You're going to have to decide what's beautiful to us which, correct me if I'm wrong, is a kind of a terrifying question from a religious perspective. It's very easy to do the obedience thing. God, you tell me what to do, I'll do it. And then God tells you, I want you to be the artist to shape the future. You decide. Uh, how would you like it? Well, I don't know. How would you like it? <laughs> You know, God can say, yeah, you know, there are a lot of possibilities here. Just stay out of the forbidden stuff and keep up with your obligations and go for it, man. Right? That's terrifying. Right? This is like yeah. Eric Fromm talks about escape from freedom. You have this real freedom. Go shape the world. Decide what you want it to be. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the challenge of Breed Mila. That's the challenge of, of circumcision. Breed Mila is the sign of that breed literally the letter of that breed, the sign of that breed. So you could, you could ask again, like, okay, so what on earth does foreskin have to do with covenant? It seems a little bit crazy. So again, aesthetics, right? So this is the circumcision. There are all these arguments about health and whatnot. This is like one of the longest running experiments that has ever existed because people are born circumcised. People are born without foreskins. If there were a significant health benefit to being circumcised, obviously this would propagate throughout the population and just everybody would be born circumcised. If there were bad health outcomes from circumcision, the Jewish people would have a terrible time reproducing because we've been doing this for a long time. Right? We would not be anymore. Right. Right? This is a long running experiment. This is very clearly neutral from an evolutionary point of view or very, very close to neutral. But aesthetically, it's very important, right? So we can see that in like David's exchange with Goliath, right? He's like harassing him about being uncircumcised. To be uncircumcised is to be animal-like. Now, I don't want to come down on anybody um, because you know this is not a mitzvah for anybody who's not Jewish. I'm just describing our particular experience of this mitzvah. But I do think it's interesting that that this became a thing, particularly in America, which was so connected to the Hebrew scriptures if you compare it to Europe, which has much less of a connection, um, and circumcision was not as popular in, in Europe as it is in America. But today, even in America, it's becoming more and more popular to be uncircumcised. Again, I, I don't want to like do a big critique of America, but it's kind of fascinating that given how David sees it, that this is like kind of an animalistic thing, where that circumcision is about going beyond the animal, that people are approaching sex today like beasts, 
like beast has even become a term of praise. Oh, that guy in the gym, he's a beast, right? But that's how people want to shape their bodies today. They want to look beast-like, right? They want to behave beast-like. Oh yeah, she was at one night stand, she was a beast. Ugh, gross. But like, this is like the aesthetics of sex today in, in certain pockets of culture anyway. Um, coarsening so, of America. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so what I wanted to bring out here is that the process of Avraham with these promises and then eventually growing into the breed, breed is about becoming human. And so on the one hand, human is about making the world beautiful. And on another, becoming fully human is about going beyond the animal and shaping yourself in a beautiful way. So our becoming isn't separate from the world's becoming. We aren't outsiders to the world. We don't look in from the outside. It feels that way. Our consciousness, though, isn't just an outsider perspective on what's going on. Our consciousness is emergent from the world. That's the power of Adam being made from the Adama, the earthling coming from the earth. I love where you've gone with that because so often we talk about circumcision as being a sign, but then we also start talking about the idea of the circumcision of the heart. Right. And so this could expand our thinking of how we think about what that is. Yeah, I would just point out that you aren't going to be able to do much with your heart if you aren't doing things with your whole body. Yeah, right. Talking about before. And I feel like that's all of a sudden the lesson that we're getting out of this is that there's a whole rich backstory between how Abram gets himself out of where he is in his spiritual formation and how he's going after God. And he gives this circumcision, but it's not a circumcision. It's a covenant of the word. Um, I guess that's one way to think of it is that it's, you know, if, if I take away that circum that word circumcision and I just insert covenant or contract of the word, and now I don't say Jeremiah doesn't say circumcise yourselves to the Lord. It says, make a covenant of the word with yourselves, just like lech lecha. If I make a covenant of the word with yourselves to the Lord, remove that from your hearts. And then it's like, bam, all of a sudden, these covenants have a totally different thing. This was a, a radical, Dottie, you brought that up, radical transformation, a radical spiritual transformation to a new place to do and then ask. I mean, that's pretty heavy. And it's all because Dottie started us off with some fantastic <laughs> questions. Thank you. Dottie, we've got to get you back on because yes. you had so many yeah. other questions here and we've had a lot of discussion about a lot of things and the questions that you Well, that's what I love about God's word is it's so deep. And no matter how deeply you dig, you can go further and further and further. And there's level after level after Mm. level. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. And I love learning from you, Mayor, because it helps open up things to us that we don't even, questions we don't even necessarily think to ask. I'll make you problems you didn't even know you had. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I needed more problems. I didn't have enough.
Shalom, y'all. This is Meir Simcha. We're glad so many people are enjoying these conversations with two Christians and a Jew. If you enjoy 2C1J, please subscribe to the podcast, spread the news about us to your family, friends, and community, and consider becoming a patron of the podcast at patreon.com backslash 2C1J. Supporting the podcast will help us produce new episodes on a regular schedule. Also, I'd love to hear from you. The best ways to get in touch are Twitter and Facebook. Links are in the podcast description below. Thank you for your support. Most of all, thank you for enjoying these explorations with us. Be well and be blessed.